Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. One cup of sprouted lentils contains double the amount of antioxidants of regular lentils. When you sprout them versus steam them or cook them in some other ways, you're increasing the vitamin C by 300%. You are activating the soluble and insoluble fiber that's very bioavailable. It's an extraordinary prebiotic to feed the gut microbiome and it's filling. And that one cup of lentils has over seven grams of protein and it tastes good. I think that's the beginning of why I was so excited about lentils and sprouting lentils. That's author Doug Evans. And this is episode 107 of the Plant Proof Podcast. friends. I hope you're doing well today. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. For those who are new to the show, my name's Simon Hill and I'm your host. By way of background, I have a bachelor's degree in physiotherapy, a master's in nutrition, and really a passion for separating fact from fiction when it comes to how our food choices affect our health and the planet's. I started this show to create a safe space, a non-judgmental space to talk about diet with the aim of separating any ideology or bias from science. And then with that information, you can make decisions in your own life that suit the lifestyle you want to lead. And that brings me to today's guest, Doug Evans. He's the author of The Sprout Book and a really fascinating man who, who wants as many people as possible to upgrade their health with sprouts. Some of you may have heard him recently on our mutual friend, Rich Roll's podcast. If not, I encourage you to check that one out too. I think you'll, you'll pick up different things from each. And if you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen me posting about sprouts on social media this week. I've grown broccoli sprouts in the past, but ahead of this conversation and having read Doug's book, I, I wanted to step things up a little bit and I grew a few other varieties and I've got to say, uh, straight up, it was a lot of fun and uh, extremely satisfying. In fact, the, the sunflower seeds I sprouted brought back memories of when I was a young boy living in Virginia Beach, we moved from, from Australia to the States for, for a few years when I was a kid. When I was in Virginia Beach, I played baseball and would always chew sunflower seeds. And I guess I picked that up from the major league players on TV, but having sprouted the, the sunflower seeds uh, this week, it was, it was very interesting for those memories to come flooding back in. Anyway, I have absolutely no doubt that you're going to love this episode and Doug. He's full of energy. And by the end of this one, I think it's going to be super clear why we need to sprout, how we can start, and a few things for all of us to be mindful of along the way. Finally, as I said, I've read Doug's book, 
But given this is sort of a sprout 101 conversation, I made a, a conscious effort to ask questions I knew the answers to for those that may be absolutely new to sprouting. And if you've seen photos and think it looks complex, trust me, it's not. As Doug says in this episode, while you typically do need a green thumb to grow fruits and vegetables, literally anyone can sprout. So with that said, let's do this. It's time to hear from the man behind the sprout revolution, Doug Evans. It is a a real pleasure to have you on the show. I I have a diverse range of guests on this show, I guess. And something that I really, really, really love doing is talking about science, but then giving people that practical, easy to implement information, things that they can do at home that are affordable, that will help upgrade their health. And that's why I'm so excited to have you on today, because that is, I guess, essentially the core of of what your message is. And I'm very grateful that you sent me a copy of your new book. It's it's fascinating. You've done a, a great job. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for your interest in you know, building a platform to share this message of healthy, compassionate, plant-friendly, planet-friendly living, very, very much needed. And you filled, you filled an important niche in that market, Simon. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. Now, the, the book itself, I just, just mentioned, I think, how many months has it been out for now? Uh, it came out in April, April 7th. So just, you know, barely three, not even 90 days. Yeah, wow. So I'm interested. I, I mean, you, you've, you've somewhat started a bit of a, a sprout revolution since the book's come out. How, have you sort of been surprised by by the feedback and the interest from everyone, or or were you sort of aware that we were we were sitting on this information, but people just um, didn't have it in a in a way that was easy to digest and sort of implement? I knew, and I had never been so certain about anything in my entire life about this message for sprouting. I think I started to sprout twenty five years ago, the first time I sprouted. I sprouted seriously 21 years ago. And then it was always in my back pocket that if the the world collapsed, there was an apocalypse, I could always sprout. And that was in the back of my consciousness. But then I moved to the Mojave Desert, to Wonder Valley Hot Springs. And the realization was that not only was I in the desert, I was in a food desert because I was an hour and 15 minutes away with no traffic to the nearest health food store, the nearest Whole Foods. And so at that time, I started to sprout. And in the course of a 30-day period, one-month period, 50% of my caloric consumption was sprouts. I mean, it was that real, that like wake up sprouts. And that's when I decided to write the book. That's when I decided to shift my focus towards sprouts. And the biggest insight that I had, Simon, was that seeds have been around since the beginning of time and that all plant life on the planet begins with seeds. But for most of civilization and human development, those seeds were planted into gardens and into farms when we had unlimited massive amounts of soil available. So everyone either grew their own vegetables or who had access to someone who grew their own vegetables. But today, and I look at where you are 
you know, in a room, you may or may not be in a house or an apartment, but most of the people that I know do not have a garden and do not know how to garden. And so the notion and concept of growing their own food for present company included was out of the question, except when it came to living in the desert and sprouting for necessity. So the insight that I had was it takes weeks, months, or years to grow seeds into mature vegetables, mature trees that bear fruit and vegetables to consume. But sprouts are edible within one week. And sprouts are grown without soil, without sunshine, using the most rudimentary equipment possible. And that was like, wow, holy cow, that's it. This is the message. This has got to get out there. And so when I had that insight and I, I connected the dots, and that was two years ago. On top of that, and we'll layer this in, I started to learn and do the research about the nutritional benefit. So all that insight came before I had any knowledge of the nutritional part. I thought maybe, okay, you can eat sprouts you know, during an apocalypse, but you really want X. And after interviewing these incredible professionals in the medical and health industry from Dr. Dean Ornish and Dr. Joel Kahn and Dr. Axe and Dr. Goldhammer and Dr. Mercola and you know Dr. Hyman, all these people, like the guy who wrote, Josh Axe wrote the keto book and Mark Hyman wrote half a dozen books on functional medicine and Joel Furman, you know, I interviewed him for the book and I was so impressed I had him write the foreword. He's a plant-based guy and wrote Eat to Live. And so the thing that these guys had in common, these professionals, were they were all little closet sprouters. Like they loved sprouts and like they weren't telling people about sprouts, but they all loved it. And that was a common thread. And then you read the white papers and you're like, wow, sprouts are not just a vegetable. It's not like vegan junk food. Sprouts are, as I wrote you know, in the cover of the book, the plant's most nutritious um, vegetables, the plant's most nutritious vegetables. I want to come to sort of the nutritional powerhouse that sprouts are and um, speak a little bit more about how concentrated they are in terms of nutrition. You mentioned that you had 50% of your calories from sprouts, I think in, in one month, you said. Yes. And I believe, if I remember correctly, I've heard you say in terms of cost, that was around $12 or something. It was unbelievably inexpensive. When The way I live my life is when I go in, I'm like all in. And so I immediately started buying my sprouting seeds in bulk. So I have five-gallon buckets, you know, 14 kilo of seeds at a time. And the, the more seeds you buy, the lower the cost is. So they were really very inexpensive. And that was the next layer. And that's what drove me to reach out to Marianne Williamson, the former presidential candidate. And she wrote Return to Love and is the expert on A Course in Miracles. And it took a lot of audacity on my part to see if I could take this woman and use her platform to share my message about sprouts. And she got it. I mean, she really got it because in the United States, 40 million people live in poverty. 
And if they're in poverty, they're in poverty, they're in food deserts, they don't have access to vegetables, they certainly don't have access to organic vegetables. So what are they eating? They're eating fast food, processed food, and they're addicted to fat, sugar, and salt from highly processed carbs and animal products. Okay, so people are probably wondering, you know, Doug Evans now, he he lives in the desert, he's growing all sorts of sprouts. But I believe that life was not always like this for you, right? You didn't. You grew up for, uh, in New York City, I think. New York City um, for forty six years. For forty six years, so life was was clearly different and took a turn. Take me take me through that journey and how you went from a, a, a big city kid to sort of you know falling in love with with the power of plants. So I, I had a and everyone has their own um, story for childhood. My story that I remember that helps inspire and motivate me was one of a very wild and insane upbringing that led me to juvenile delinquency, that led me to the streets. And at age 17, I joined the U.S. Army as a paratrooper. So that was, you know, self-directed therapy for me because I wanted to be disciplined. I wanted to take control of my life. And I believed the brainwashing of the TV commercials of the U.S. Army, Be All You Can Be, Army College Fund. And, and now I, I've become friends with Joe DeSanta from Spartan Race. But I saw those obstacle courses and I, they looked fun to me and they looked like a good challenge. Well, I, I went to the Army. When I got out of the Army, I was deprived of so many things and that I felt like I needed to make money. So the next chapter in my life, the next 10 years of my life were focused all around design, graphic design and making money. And then I I had the really wake up call next major chapter 10 years later when my aunt got diabetes, my uncle got heart disease. They chopped off my aunt's feet below her ankles, both feet. And then my mother got stomach cancer. My father got heart disease. My brother had the first of three strokes and a heart attack and diabetic and atrial fibrillation and hypertension, lucky to be alive. And I was 36 pounds heavier. Like I would, you know, just eat junk food. I I mean, I remember the last day before I went vegetarian in 1999, I ate McDonald's for lunch where I had nine-piece chicken McNugget, double quarter pounder with cheese, large fries, large vanilla shake, large Coke, and to top it off, an apple pie. And I wasn't even hungry, but like the food just triggered all like the dopamine and serotonin in my brain, the pleasure sensors, and I ate that. And then a few hours later, before I met Denise Mari, I had a shish kebab in the street in Times Square in New York City. And so that's where I was. And then in a two-week period after meeting Denise, reading a lot of books, reading David Wolf's first book, Nature's First Law, The Raw Food Diet, went to a seminar at the Big Apple Vegetarian Society and saw Paul Nissan talk about raw food. I went from vegetarian, vegan to raw vegan in a two-week period. And that was 1999. And I'm so grateful. Like My life went from being like asleep at the wheel, like being in a comatose to being like awake, present. I'm 54 years old now. I feel like I'm in the best physical condition, 
better than I was when I was in the army. I'm not like an ultra performance guy like Rich Roll, who I saw two days ago. I'm not like him, but I'm like, for me, I'm awake and I'm energetic and I feel great. And that was the beginning of the journey, Simon. Can you tell me, because I think an interesting point on that is that your your transition was quite quick, right? Away from fast food that, as you said, contains sugar, oil, fat. And I think something that people struggle with is, and particularly with introducing a, a, a food like sprouts, let's say, into their diet, is if they're eating a lot of this really hyper, super palatable food that essentially has been designed to get you addicted, that it's very hard for healthier foods to sort of compete at a taste bud level. How did you so quickly make that change? Was it, was it the purpose that you, you had underneath that sort of was spurring you along? I felt that tuning in to the plant-based consciousness, the infinite intelligence of the plants would raise my vibration and take me into another level that intellectually and I don't want to be extreme, but intellectually, I realized that the processed food was dead food and was basically, I was self-medicating myself with food and that I was addicted to this food that I knew the consequences of eating this food would be death. And and I I, I saw it so clearly. It would be as if if, if people were smoking cigarettes backwards and they put the lit part of the cigarette into their mouth and it burnt their tongue and it burnt their lips and it burnt their lungs, um, they'd probably stop smoking. And I was able to see that that food had no upside to me whatsoever. Like that food was me being part of someone else's agenda. Someone was profiting. No one cared about me. And then it made total logical sense of the largest mammals on the planet were herbivores and that there's some sarcastic people who are not vegan. I had um, a meeting with someone who wasn't vegan two days ago and he's a gardener and he's super cool. And my girlfriend said to him, are you vegan? He goes, no, but I only eat vegans. And like in my mind, I'm saying that's not really funny, but I understand you're eating herbivores. And he, and I said, well, that's you know your choice. And I, I've stopped telling people what not to do because it totally alienates. So I'm looking to build more bridges. So what I'm what I did was just talk about sprouts and what what I'm encouraging people to do. And I think my message, which is easy, is that World Health Organization. U.S. dietary guidelines, whatever institutions you have, you know, in the U.K., that there's consensus that vegetables are good for you, right? There's consensus. I think even Weight Watchers says that raw fruits and vegetables are zero points on their system. So if you're eating raw fruits and vegetables, just keep eating them, right? And sprouts fall into the category of raw vegetables. So why this message? And by the way, my book has been out less than 90 days. It's going into the third printing already. So the message is resonating and it's not with hippy dippy trippies. I mean, on my Instagram today, a Sports Illustrated um, swimsuit model, you know, just posted this in her story. Heidi Cortez posted into her, her story. 
we had people that you'd think in the choir, like Rich Roll, he's in the choir, right? But then guys like Juji Mufu, who's like an acrobatic muscle bodybuilder, flex guy, totally into eating 4,000 calories of mostly meat and other things. He sent me a message that uh, he felt like he was living under a rock and he started growing sprouts. He now has a sprout farm, a sprout farm on his kitchen countertop, and he's adding sprouts to every meal. Like he just gets it. And this is a guy who you'd never think would get it. And then the mainstream mother, the housewife, even before I did the Katie Wells Wellness Mama, who speaks the largest blog focused on parenting, like putting that out to her audience. Even before that, people were reaching out to me, buying the book, talking about growing sprouts. And the connection with nature was so obvious that parents were were showing the sprouts to their kids. And the kids were like fascinated that the seeds were literally growing you know, in size, doubling every day. And like, how is that happening? And then you feed the kid at any age, you know, a handful of sprouts, they don't taste bad. They may not taste good, but they don't taste bad. And the fact that they grew them, there's a sense of ownership. So getting back to your first question, for me, it just became so obvious. Like when I realized, like I knew cocaine, I was going to say Coca-Cola, but cocaine, when I knew like cocaine from the earliest age was addictive, I avoided like the plague, right? But Coca-Cola, I thought was Coke is it, right? I thought Coke was the real thing, always Coca-Cola. So in my brain, I was drinking a half a gallon of Coca-Cola every day, every day. And long before I became vegan, long before I became vegetarian, someone whispered in my ear that that was like motor oil, like that was high fructose corn syrup, that was liquid diabetes, and that not only would it rot my teeth, but it would totally like make me dumber. Like it would make me fat and dumber and empty calories. And they just said it. And literally, like I looked at it, I go, why would I do that? Oh, I like the taste. And so I went like a heroin addict, white knuckled it, and I gave up Coke. I never, ever had Coke after that moment. And I look for things in my life where the, where there's truth. And when, once the truth resonates with me, there's like no going back. For me, I don't know about other people, but for me. So after after this transition, you're in you're you're still in New York City at this stage, right? As you oh, transition yeah. to the raw the raw vegan diet, right? Yes. Um, was Angelica's Kitchen around then? Oh yeah, I there? loved Angelica's Kitchen. They didn't have too much raw stuff. I'll tell them. Okay. I'll tell you, but they had enough to make me happy, and I thought it was very clean, very local, and I probably eaten um, there a hundred plus times. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I think. Um, I think it was John Joseph told me about that place, and and this was obviously it's shut down now. But I remember going, and they 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 made a delicious cornbread, and um, yeah, sad sad to see that place go. Yeah. So this is so this is New York. Okay, so walk me through then 
the move to to the desert. You're you're in uh, Joshua Tree, is that right? Yeah, I'm in I'm I'm in a little unincorporated town east of Joshua Tree, where with a clear mind, I had a vision that there were hot springs here, and no one had ever like had hot springs in Wonder Valley. And long story short, I found the hot springs and I moved, and now I'm here. But I'll I'll go back to New York and just you know connect a few dots. So I'm in New York. I'm eating raw and it's really challenging. Not one raw food restaurant, no access to recipes. So Denise and I started what was like a organic raw vegan co-op out of my loft on the Lower East Side called Organic Avenue. And within a couple of years, Denise had bought so much inventory and there were people coming to our house, our loft all hours, day and night for potlucks, for parties, for classes, to buy these prepared raw snacks that were coming from all over the world. And we were even selling hemp clothing at the time. It was good times, but we had enough inventory. So we opened up our first retail store and we started doing cold pressed juice in a glass bottle in 2002. So just, you know, someone asked, what's the what was the market for organic cold pressed juice in a glass bottle with the $2 deposit? Um, in 2002, it was zero. But I think we sold 10 juices the first day and then it grew and grew and grew. And then we started making 50 raw food items every day, seven days a week. And we opened up 10 stores all through New York. And it was just, it was a real deal. So that was my my journey. And that was, you know, in hindsight, we were basically subsidizing raw food, organic, raw, vegan food for New York City, because, you know, in hindsight, you look back and you can't make money with organic raw food in New York. If you're paying labor, you're paying rent, you're paying insurance, you're paying for permits, you're paying for transportation costs and packaging costs, and you have a three day short shelf life on it. It was not a good business to be in by any means, but it was something we were really passionate about. Okay. So oh, <laughs> that's, that's organic Avenue. Yes. Then you, then you wind up in the desert and that's when you have, you start your, your sprouting experience, I guess, to, to see uh, what you can grow in the, in the, the desert and how sort of self-sufficient you can be. Yeah. Well, there was a little transition. I had this little idea to make a juicer that didn't require any cleaning, a cold press juicer. So I came up with the idea. I built a prototype. I raised a lot of capital. And then I went to Silicon Valley, which was not the place to launch an organic, raw, vegan, low margin, high quality business. So that I did that for five years. And after that business got composted, then I moved to the desert. Composted. <laughs> I like that composted. Um, what was that like, uh, Silicon Valley? Because I mean, it's 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 a place that a lot of people hear about. But what was what was it like being you know starting a startup in in Silicon Valley? Silicon Valley has a place. Like if you have a big idea, you need capital like Silicon Valley has to grow it really fast. And for example, very very few people know this. But Uber was birthed out of Silicon Valley in San Francisco. And today, and many years later, maybe seven, eight years later, Uber is still losing 
somewhere on the order of 10 or $11 million a day, right? And they're working on a winner-take-all game. And so companies like Amazon grew out of Silicon Valley. Google grew out of Silicon Valley. And Google, had they not had the venture backing, because for the first few years of Google, they had no revenue. They were just using server space, server space, writing software, hiring people, but no revenue. So all of these Silicon Valley provides life support for visions that can turn into household names and institution. Apple grew out of Silicon Valley. So being there, there's a lot of super smart people, but it's it's a very difficult environment. So it's hard on people to be in Silicon Valley. And for me, I'm this raw vegan, yogi, hippie out of New York who ran a lemonade stand. I go to Silicon Valley. It's a whole different level of operating. And I had to learn about electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, packaging, sustainable packaging, food service, food safety, recipe development, and then pulling them all together in a very short time period because when you hire all these people before you have revenue, you have what they call a burn rate. So there's pressure to launch, there's pressure to do a lot of things, and then th- there's a lot of pressure. And I took the pressure. And you, well. you, you, you raised a lot of money, right? I oh, mean, yeah. With that comes even more pressure. Oh, in excess of $120 million we raised. So a lot of pressure. And then I think that if people didn't know how much money we raised, No one cared, but because Silicon Valley is all about the money, then people write about the money. And then, you know, considering if you were solving curing cancer, right, and you had a magic bullet, cure cancer, then people can understand it, right? But if you're Starbucks and you're spending a hundred million dollars on building another facility to make juice or coffee, no one's going to even read their press release, right? But if you're a startup and you have this innovative machine that some people like really like, the more people that really like you and love you creates more people that will just want to hate you. And there's that polarity, which is exacerbated and exaggerated in Silicon Valley. It's just they, you're, you're a hero or you're a villain, and there's no equanimity there. There's no patience. And I think investors know that 99% of the businesses will not become big business. So it's like publishers. I don't know if, you're, if you know about publishers, but they're like, as Rich Roll said, the publishers are funding a lot of books, hoping for the next Harry Potter, but not, a lot of them will never go anywhere. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you said five years and then you composted it, but when you look back on that now, what did you take away from it? Like, what are some of the good key learnings that you've kind of walked away from that experience? Oh, so many of them. Like the the best learning was that I am capable of doing things that I've never done before. And I'm able to do them at a very high level if I'm focused on them. So that was key. I learned so much about teamwork and leverage and how do you lead people that actually know a lot more about the topic than you do. So we had in the company, 
We had 12 PhDs and nine food scientists and dozens of engineers. So organizing these people and developing a culture was incredible learnings. I'd say on the communication side, in my world and in my mind, I never could have imagined that there was, and by, by the way, this is before the era of Trump and fake news, right? So this is before that. I never could have imagined that people would write an article with half-truths for the sole purpose of getting clicks. Like, I never would, I, I couldn't, I thought that there was such journalistic integrity and that people would fact-check and there would be consequences for people not telling the truth, right? I was aware there was a National Enquirer, but I wasn't aware that other what I thought were more credible institutions would have lower standards of journalism. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. Yeah, that certainly seems to have gone out the window a little bit now. <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about sprouts and, 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 and why they're so magical? Yeah. I've, I've got some here. So I've been sprouting this week doing a few, so you can see those. Oh, perfect. I wonder if you can guess... Can, can you tell what they, they are? They look like mung beans from here. They're broccoli sprouts. Oh, broccoli sprouts. Okay, I can't see. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So I've done, I've done broccoli sprouts, uh, sunflower, and chickpeas this week. Okay. And they've all worked absolutely perfectly according to the the details in your book. So it's been a very smooth. And as you said before, even for myself, you were talking about kids, but even for myself, and I have done broccoli sprouts a while ago, but I've never really r- just immerse myself in it properly even for myself to watch it and to to take care of them and you and and do the rinsing twice a day you do feel uh, a sense of achievement when they uh, come to life um, it's quite incredible so let's dive into I guess the practical component but just to preface that we we touched on nutrition a little bit yes what is what is so magical about taking these seeds? and sprouting them and, and soaking and rinsing and sprouting them. What's so magical in terms of the, the nutritional properties? Well, I think for one is that the seed itself contains all of the intelligence and programming so that it can go from a complete living organism sitting in a dormant state with theoretically indefinite shelf life that you could take that seed and by creating the environment of germination, which is a little darkness and the right level of moisture, whether it's soaking or the like, that that seed has everything in it that all it needs is water to go from zero to hero right in that week period. And as it's growing, it has these concentrations of micronutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, polyphenols, prebiotics, soluble, insoluble fiber, that they're all in there. And that once it gets to like the week period, seven days, 10 days, 
at that point, it then needs soil. It then needs fertilizer. It then needs other minerals so that it could go to the next level. So if you think about that, the seed itself in that level is self-contained. That's like the magical insight that I saw that people looked at sprouts as something that was a process of growing vegetables or trees in a garden or on a farm. And there are a few hippy-dippy trippies along the way, the Victoros Kavinskas and Ann Wigmores and Brian Clements, these like theoretically extreme you know, people who were promoting sprouts, but to a very small audience from there. What, what I saw was when I was living in the desert that not only were they food, not only were they organic vegetables, but that they had high concentrations. I'm going to give you an example, and this is in my book. One cup of sprouted lentils contains double the amount of antioxidants of regular lentils. So that's like celebrate right there, like home run victory, right? Take lentils, sprout them, and you double the antioxidant level, like 100% more antioxidants. And the antioxidants, depending on the call of the lentils, they could be the anthocyanidin, they could be beta carotene, but holy camoly, you're getting double the antioxidants, okay? So that's one little point. The next little point is you're getting triple the vitamin C, that lentils, which were an important part of the, the, the plant-based cuisine globally, when you sprout them versus steam them or cook them in some other ways, you're increasing the vitamin C by 300%, right? And vitamin C is extraordinary for so many things. So you're tripling the vitamin C and you are activating the soluble and insoluble fiber that's very bioavailable because you're taking the seed, which is hard, right? Like a rock, you could break your tooth if you were if you were eating a raw, dried lentil. But when you sprout them, you're getting this incredible soluble and insoluble fiber. And because it's young and tender, it's very bioavailable. So it's, it's an extraordinary prebiotic to feed the gut microbiome and it's filling. And that one cup of lentil, one cup of lentils has over seven grams of protein in it. And it tastes good. Like they're, you know, the broccoli sprouts may be harder to eat. They may taste like a finely chopped salad with like a hint of broccoli. The lentil sprouts, they're just easy to eat, right? They've got a mild flavor. They're chewy. They're crunchy. So I think that's the beginning of like why I was so excited about lentils and sprouting lentils. And w- one of the other things that you, you mentioned in your book is that the, the sprouting process, you've spoken then, it increases the nutrient concentration, but also makes certain particularly minerals, I guess, bioavailable by breaking down anti-nutrients like right, phytic, phytic acid, acid and, yes. and, and, le- and lectins. And that's something that, you know, I speak about, I've spoken about on the show before um, that, you know, people when they're having their legumes, they, you can soak them before you're cooking them to, to help break that down. But this essentially, sprouting them does that to another level, right? Oh, yeah. Look, I, I think that for purposes of this 
podcast, lectins are something that I don't have a problem with. And when I speak to the range of medical doctors that I've spoken to, they don't have a problem with them either. either. So I don't want to even kind of give too much credence to um, some of the things that people are isolating, you know, certain things in plants and fault finding with them. So, but what I'll say is that when it's raw, when it's sprouted, when it's still alive, when it's growing, seems like the best way to consume them. I mean, the, the other great part is, as you mentioned before, that this is kind of diet agnostic. You can, you can add sprouts and, and get these benefits of increasing the nutrient concentration and availability to your omnivorous diet, to your keto diet, to your paleo diet, to your plant diet. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's, it's available to everyone. Yeah. And it's available. And like, like you, we, you began in the beginning of this podcast for literally under a dollar a serving that it's that inexpensive. And, and I've said this before. It was like my whole life. We're searching for truths. We're searching for information. And I felt like when I made the connection and I connected the dots about sprouts, I felt that every single living human being needed to have that message because the sprouts provide the nutrition. In the book, I went out on the limb, out of my comfort zone to co-create 40 recipes of what people could do with sprouts. And they're all raw, they're all plant-based, and 50% of the ingredients are sprouts because that's what I thought would be interesting because there's so much, so many people have said to me, well, I'm never going to just eat sprouts. I mean, there's some fanatics like I love, like Joe DeSanta at Spartan Race. He's like, I'm going to do 14 days of just sprouts. And I'm like, go for it, brother, go go for it. But for, for the most part, people aren't going to do that. So I felt that sprouts can be added to smoothies, to salads. You can juice the sprouts. We have desserts where you can make goji berry cacao sprout balls and you're getting them. And then there's a whole level and we could talk about this for days. And I I've developed a relationship with Dr. Jed Fahey from Johns Hopkins university, who is the man that discovered that broccoli sprouts have the highest amount of sulforaphane through the precursor of sulforaphane glucoraphanin and the enzyme myrosinase. So when you Chew. So on this level, it's well known that cruciferous vegetables have anti-cancerous properties. That compound is called sulforaphane. He did the work 20 plus years ago that broccoli sprouts have the most because they were looking for which strain of broccoli had it. And he said, well, the broccoli sprouts have that. So I, I did a lot of research and really stretching my level of, of knowledge, which is why when I didn't understand it, I said, I'm going to go right to the horse's mouth. And he was very kind to provide that. And maybe we could do something with that information because I have an hour and 40 minute Zoom interview with him. I'll send you the link after and you can, maybe we can do something with it. Yeah, definitely. I'm thinking of putting up a little a little blog that summarizes this podcast and a link to your book and whatnot. So we'll, we can put the, the link to that video in there as well. Great. 
Actually, just on broccoli sprouts, while, while you're talking about that, a question I had was in, in your research, did you come across anything that that said when the concentration of sulforaphane is at the maximum point? Like, is it is it is it three days, four days, a week? When when would you say is the best time to to eat the broccoli sprouts if you're going for uh, maximum sulforaphane? So the answer to that question is the broccoli seed itself that you don't even need to sprout it. Now, by the way, it's tricky because people eat poppy seeds, they eat sesame seeds, they eat sunflower seeds. No one eats broccoli seeds, but it turns out that every single broccoli seed is dosed with a finite amount of glucoraphanin and myrosinase. And as the sprout gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you're not getting any more of the glucoraphanin and myrosinase. So therefore, the question was, um, when is the, your question was, when do you get the most sulforaphane? It's in the seed level. But the seed itself is the hardest to eat. It's just the hardest to eat because it'll probably get stuck in your teeth and it might even be sharp coming out. So therefore, the best time to eat them in the sprout form is probably around three days because that way they've gone from a seed into a living vegetable with a tail and it's it's now very like palatable and and familiar as a sprout. Yeah, I I, I mean you you mentioned before broccoli sprouts can have a bit of an interesting flavor. I guess for the first time you have them maybe. I put some in my smoothie this morning and to be honest, you 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 barely even notice that they're there when you do that. So if you find that they are a little uh, hard to eat just just by the the handful at the start, then probably working them into dishes and and like some of the recipes in your books, a good way to introduce them to your taste buds. Sure, and if you are um, having smoothies by freezing them and then putting them in the smoothie, you are actually increasing the level of the sulforaphane because the freezing process is breaking the cell walls so that you're getting more bioavailable accessibility to the combination of the glucoraphanin and the myrosinase by freezing and then blending and then consuming. So the, the plants want to help you. What you need to do is get out of the way and listen to them and things can change like in an instant, in an instant, you can change your life. You could say, I'm not going to smoke. You know, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I am going to do this. And I think why the level, um, one of the uh, people who I interviewed reached out to one of the sprout companies and they said that their sales are the largest, highest they've ever been by a factor of 10 since the book came out. Like they couldn't even keep up with the sales of the seeds. But here's the magic. When we talk about environmental use of, of resources, one broccoli seed can grow into a broccoli plant. It can then flower. It will then have a pod and have 600 more seeds can grow from one. So this is mathematics that are beyond my level of computation. and with such small amount of water, such small amount of land, 
that this is like if we're looking for a solution, you know, for for nutrition, sprouts are the most obvious that I can hallucinate, dream of, or or share. Yeah, I mean that that has me thinking about developing countries with there's there's food scarcity and 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 they don't have the the resources locally from an agriculture point of view to to provide people with adequate nutrition but also even even like through this pandemic we tangibly sort of saw and felt particularly i know that in america uh, as well as australia but it only took a, a week or a week and a half of panic and you see how fragile the food system is when the the grocery stores were completely empty and all you could buy was was frozen food. Yeah, I mean, I was saying for the first few weeks of the pandemic that there was a shortage of toilet paper in America, but there was no shortage of broccoli seeds. But then the book came out and then there was a shortage of, of broccoli seeds, which now they, they've caught up on it. But I think that this is the beginning of people becoming aware of food sovereignty, food quality, nutritional benefits, and sprouting at home is easy. It's low cost. It's super nutritious. It's flexible from so many different levels and it's accessible. And as you, you know, I saw like the little glimmer of the little boy in your eyes. You're like, it's fun to sprout, to, to watch the seeds growing. So I think we're, we're just at the beginning of the sprouting era. Like it is. And, and by the way, every single day I'm out there and I'm sharing the message and it's being replicated and it's going and it's going. I mean, that one Juji Mufu, like one, vi- one like post that he put up on his Instagram had 64,000 likes. 64,000 likes. That's I mean, incredible. you're, you're a social media guy. How many, yeah, how many views did you get before oh. you get 64,000 likes? It, it's millions. And I mean, back to your point originally, he's not someone that you would look at and think would be sprouting. So it starts to change that uh, sort of association of who you would associate with growing broccoli sprouts or, or growing sunflower sprouts um, in their kitchen. So it, yeah, I, I saw that and I was like, that, that is really cool because that opens up to a whole nother community of people. Right. Yeah, it's, 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 it is great to see. And last night I had dinner with a friend. Um, we have a vegan restaurant here in Bondi and I had dinner with a friend and he was asking me about what I'd been up to and whatnot. And I, I said that we were we were going to have a conversation. I was going to have a conversation with you tomorrow. And I started talking to him about sprouts. And he's he's thirty five, and I I saw his face light up. And he's he's messaging me straight away this morning saying, "Where do I buy the jars from? What do I need to get started?" So it's cool. It's it, you're right. It's it's something that that is exciting to to do and 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 just see those changes within an hour or two three hours you see these these sprouts change which is really cool yeah well look if if there was any legitimate criticism about like the journey on juicero was that it was expensive right the machine was a few hundred dollars start off at seven hundred dollars then it dropped to four hundred and then a serving of juice was five six or seven dollars and that was basically the same cost of going to a juice bar, five, six, seven dollars for the juice. With sprouts, 
if you were to buy finished sprouts in the health food store, the farmer's market, it's $5. But if you sprout them on your own, it could be 25 cents. So the fact that you can get 20 to one leverage by taking a few minutes a day and have more control, that was to me the eye opener about the global accessibility of sharing this nutrition. Whereas in my book, I mentioned Dean Ornish was advising the CEO of McDonald's. And he said, you got to put healthy items on the, on the menu. They put a salad on the menu for $5.99 and the salad probably had 100 calories and the Big Mac is 900 calories for 99 cents. So no one is buying that. So the fact that you're getting the calories and you're the nutrition and it's organic and it's clean and it's super powerful, I think that's where the sprouts, it's time for sprouting in the world. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. So as, as my friend asked me and said, what equipment does, does he need? I, I know that you can, we can, we can, you can sprout a number of different types of seeds and, and, and the way that you do it can slightly vary. You say that each seed has its own journey, which I think is a, is a really cool way of describing it. But if, if we sort of just think about the beginner getting, getting started with the most common sort of seeds, what equipment, what setup do you recommend? I think the easiest thing is using a jar. Mason jars work well, but you could use pretty much any jar and empty pasta sauce jar, any glass jar, any vessel, any bowl, any colander strainer. I mean, the, the seeds, the, the interesting thing is you need a green thumb in order to grow a flowering vegetable or a fruit tree or a garden. The sprouts are very simple. And in the book, I talk about trays, jars, bags, and if you're with a tray, different sprouting mediums. But the easiest way to start is in a jar. Mason jar is easy enough to do a mason jar. And they make these special screens for the mason jars like you have on on your bottles. Yeah. But you could even take a piece of cheesecloth and a rubber band and that works. Yeah. So you can get the, the one that I've bought has like a plastic top. Do you recommend getting the metal? I think it was BPA free, but afterwards I thought I probably should have bought that with the, the, the metal lid. I think if you get the metal, you want to get stainless steel because there's various, as you know, there's various types of metal and some of the other metals will rust. That's pretty interesting the way that they... They built the lid with the angle on it. So it's, it's a stand. So there's a lot of creativity, you know, happening, you know, with them. And I saw Rich Roll's post yesterday, you know, of his like sprout farm that he's got going on. But I think the easiest thing is get a jar, get some seeds. And if you want to save money, grab a few of your friends and buy bulk and then split it up because you'll get a lot of benefit from doing that. That's what I was going to ask you about the buying in bulk. Is there, 
is there a typical sort of shelf life? Like, can you can you just stock up and buy a whole lot and and leave it in your your cupboard in a sort of uh, a, a, a space out of out of sunlight and and you know room temperature and they'll last a long time? I think that if you're going to buy bulk, and I buy my seeds in bulk, generally I'm buying minimum five pound size, often eighteen pounds or thirty five pounds. I store them in the freezer. Okay, and the the freezer seems to be the best nature preservative, and then they still sprout well. I think if you're going to use them relatively fast, I've stored them in glass jars in my cupboard for months. I think it's all about germination rate, and the fresher they are, the colder they are, um, the higher the germination rate will be. And you mentioned before, I think you said totally organic. Is it organic seeds that people should be buying if the, if organic are not available are sort of conventional okay and i guess the the second part of that in terms of choosing the right seeds is is there a difference between buying chickpeas to sprout and and just dried chickpeas or garbanzo beans from the store so the seeds sprouting seeds are the highest level seeds that are the most expensive that will have the highest degree of germination. So I prefer organic, but I think if you're buying sprouting seeds, you want to ensure that they've been tested for pathogens. So it's easy testing to see if they've got E. coli, Listeria, or Salmonella on them. And the second thing is you want to get a high testing for high germination rate. Because if you the difference between buying organic lentil sprouting seeds versus just getting them out of the bulk bin, you know, in, in the grocery store is the ones in the, in the grocery store. We don't know how old they are. We don't know how they've been handled. And if they've been, you know, marketed in there, most likely they're expecting people to cook them. So if you're going to cook them, it really doesn't matter, but if you're going to sprout them and you're going to eat them raw, you definitely want to be conscious and present about where they came from because the seeds that don't sprout will have a higher probability of creating mold and kind of ruining the batch, like the bad apple in the in the batch. Okay, so you want to buy them from someone online or someone at the market or a store that specializes in seeds for sprouting and has has that information that you're talking about in terms of bacteria and in terms of germination rate. Correct. And if you're going to do that, the volume of seeds that you buy will definitely go down if you're buying larger quantities. So therefore, if you were looking at taking this seriously, I would recommend grab three or four people and buy a five-pound bag versus a four-ounce bag or even a one-pound bag. Because Literally, and I don't know the price the prices right now offhand, but it was something like one pound of seeds of broccoli seeds was twenty five dollars, but five pounds was ninety four dollars. So savings are, are there, and you know at this day we don't know what's happening tomorrow. So I'm not a fan of wasting money. Yeah. So we we've spoken about I guess legumes and and some of these other seeds and I think people will be familiar I guess with like flaxseed and hempseed and chia seed but you can also sprout 
like whole grains and yeah. and various and nuts and is it the same thing when you if you're buying certain nuts and whole grains to sprout you're buying them from uh, someone who is specializing in sprouting yeah i mean it's all about quality and, and germination rate right so most people do not know this but most like almonds that are sold are pasteurized so if they've been pasteurized they probably won't sprout. If you can find a source for really raw almonds and then you soak them, they will sprout. If you soak them for 12 hours and you then dehydrate them, you've actually germinated and begun the process. If you've got really raw almonds and then you soak them and then you rinse them, they'll start to grow a tail and you'll get this kind of interesting almond-like flavor but you'll get more volume and this nut will shift its way into a vegetable. Like you had mentioned chia and flax, the gelatinous seeds, like sprouting chia and sprouting flax, taking that little seed and turning it into an organic vegetable, it will still have the omega-3 medium chain fatty acids, but it'll also have chlorophyll and fiber and it becomes something else that you can get to eat not just add on, you know, to a smoothie. I guess w- one of the the things that could be interesting to do here is we hear th- we hear the term sprouts, but then there's also shoots and microgreens. Yes. Can you explain the the difference between these terms and I guess the difference between like a, a lentil sprout and uh, like kale microgreens? I think generally the sprouts are grown in a jar and they're forming a ball or a curvy part because they're just growing. The microgreens are basically the precursor to the more mature vegetable. And those microgreens are exclusively grown in trays and either in soil or a soil substitute, or also known as a sprouting medium. I talk about in my book, you can use an unbleached paper towel to grow as a sprouting medium. But microgreens tend to take about twice as long as sprouts to grow. And they're predominantly, if not exclusively, grown in a tray versus a jar or a bag or a colander, and they will grow straight up. But from a nutrition perspective, they're very similar. From a growing perspective, they're very similar. It's moreover, I look at microgreens in the US as much more as a specialty culinary part of of being grown. And very few people that I know are using microgreens as a food source because the process takes at least twice as long and requires um, more equipment and medium. And a shoot is just something, you know, in between the microgreen and the sprout, it's the, it's the shoot and the root goes down and the shoot goes up and the shoot is what holds the, the leaves and it's part of the process. So for someone just wanting to dip their toes, I guess, into this space and just start seeing a a few of these seeds come to life, you'd recommend starting with sprouting? Yeah, I would start with broccoli sprouts. Um, I'd start with maybe 
lentils or any of the legumes, very easy to do and easy place to start. I think that although I love sunflower sprouts and sunflower shoots or sunflower microgreens, a little bit harder to get off the ground. A little jar here might be hard to see. Yeah. So I would rinse those semi-aggressively and you'll start to get the shells, the black shells to start to come off. And so just tricky, but those would be good. So when you're sprouting the the sunflower seeds, they'll grow to about an inch or two. Okay. And But if you were growing them you know, on a tray as like microgreens, they might grow to four or five inches tall. You mentioned then rinsing. So let's talk about water. The, the first process, it seems, for most of these, not for all, some of them you talk about spraying, but for most of them, you're, you're soaking them for you know, eight hours or overnight or yes. something like that, right? How important is the, the quality of the water? Because when I went to do it, I have a water f- uh, filter at home, but I almost went and started with tap water and I wasn't sure how it affects the end product. So what, what do you recommend there? I mean, if you think about what's in the water, chlorine and fluoride, are basically like antibiotic, antiseptics parts. So there's things in there designed to stop growth of things, more algae and bacteria. But I tend to get the best results using filtered water um, or spring water for growing. And you just mentioned that with the sunflower sprouts to, to sort of rinse them aggressively. What is it about the, the, the rinsing process that you're doing two, three times a day that helps with the, the germination rate? Basically, what we're attempting to do in the rinsing process and the soaking process is to simulate the environment in nature to basically make it favorable and friendly for the seed to sprout and grow into a plant. So if you think about what would happen in nature, either an animal would eat it and it would start to pre-digest as it's going through the intestinal tract, or it's going to be in soil. And if it's a moist soil environment, it's comfortable, it'll start to sprout because it thinks that's the environment for it to grow. So by soaking, you're kind of jump-starting the germination process where you're allowing the seed and the hard shell, also known as the testa, to absorb the water and become kind of um, pliable and malleable so that it's easier for it to sprout. And then by rinsing it two or three times a day or spraying it two or three times a day, you're creating enough moisture to feed it so that it continues to grow because if it's not getting the moisture level, it will just dry out and die. Okay, and in terms of the process where you're doing the the rinsing a, a few times a day and you're, you're keeping them in your kitchen, do you want them in the sun? Is it important that they're in the sun, away from direct sunlight? And does the, does the temperature of the room uh, affect the, the germination as well? I think the warmer the environment, and you're going to have to translate this in the show notes, or I can look at uh, I could look at Fahrenheit to Celsius here. So let me look at that. But I think that it's important that they have the moisture. It's important that in the beginning, you know, it's relatively dark, and they do not need direct sunlight. So 
as a matter of fact, direct sunlight could actually be detrimental to them. But I would say an ideal temperature would be 65 or 70 degrees. So like 18 to 22 degrees Celsius. And I wouldn't go higher in than, you know, 25 or 26 degrees Celsius, which is 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, perfect. That's, that's pretty easy to do. Last night, I, or yesterday, I put some chickpeas into this container and I think I put too many, right? Can you see that there? Yes. Yep. That's, that's too full. Is it too full? Would you say it started off? I'd say around half. Yeah. Yeah. I might split that into two, into two jars now. Okay. My question is I, at around lunchtime, I soaked those and I had planned to then drain the water out around bedtime or or later in the evening, but I forgot. And so they ended up soaking, instead of soaking eight hours, they soaked maybe 16. Is that an issue? It could be. You could have waterlogged them and they may just be kapui. And if (laughs) if that's the case, you could still cook them and eat them. You don't have to throw them out. But if they're not sprouting and you're not seeing a white tail coming out within 12 or 24 hours, then I would just cook them or compost them. Okay. I guess that's all part of the, the fun, playing around with them. And, and then you develop that relationship where you know uh, how that process is going. Yeah. And there's some things since we're talking about that. It's very important that if you are sprouting and you do your final rinse, you let them air out before you put them in the refrigerator. You don't want to put wet sprouts in the refrigerator or you will get mold. Okay. And that was my next question. Years ago, I remember someone telling me about alfalfa sprouts and salmonella. And I, I actually, at the time, didn't, re- didn't read much about it. But I've always just had this idea of uh, alfalfa sprouts can go bad really easily. Be careful with them. Is salmonella and bacteria like this, is it, is it, is it common? If you, we spoke about making sure you're buying um, good quality seeds. If you're doing that, is it common that bacteria will find their way into the sprouts? And if so, what are the sort of signs for people um, so they know not to eat them? And what, what can people do to, I guess, minimize the risk of bacteria? I think for one, you know, there's natural cleaning agents like food-grade hydrogen peroxide or grapefruit seed extract. And I would say it's, it, a lot of people are not that careful in the kitchen around cleanliness and sanitation. And, you know, if you were to swab the average American kitchen, you know, where they cook chicken, there's probably salmonella in the kitchen. If you're doing the best you can to properly wash your sprouting equipment and you're using the, the right seeds and you're, you're rinsing them appropriately and you're following the schedule. I have not, and I'm pretty out there and I, I'm getting a lot of communication. I have not had one reported incident of foodborne bacteria or pathogens on homegrown sprouts in the, the decades that I've been sprouting and involved with, with sprouting. Now, it's definitely when you're dealing with raw food, all raw food, you know, whether it's meat or plant-based, um, has risk of pathogens. Like we live in, a, in an environment of bacteria. And one, one final thing that I might get you to comment on is just the, the mindset with eating. I've listened to a, a few of your 
other podcasts before and you comment, I guess, on this uh, pleasure versus benefit yeah, and and changing that that relationship that we have with food and how we look at it. Can you just share what what your what what is your relationship with food and what what are the the sort of main reasons that you personally eat sprouts and eat a a diet that is you know extremely healthy? Yeah, I'm aware that everything that I put in my mouth is in fact a life or death decision, and that it is no joke. Like food is not something that we should joke around with. So you know, with that, my goal of food is that I want to eat the highest quality nutrition on a per calorie basis. And I'm aware of the pleasure trap as, you know, Dr. Doug Lyle and Alan Goldhammer wrote in in the book, the pleasure trap of the impact of fat, sugar, and salt and what they can do on the brain. And that I know that as much as I can overeat a lot of different things, whether it's chocolate or durian or jackfruit, I cannot overeat raw sprouts or raw vegetables. Like if you gave me a head of broccoli, you know, or a handful of raw broccoli sprouts and I was hungry, I would eat and eat. And then at some point, like I would say, I'm done. But if that were like French fries, like I could just keep eating them, right? The, the impact on my brain of the fat, sugar, and salt has nothing to do with nutrition. It, it has to do with the pleasure sensors. And, you know, that's why I'm a, a big uh, proponent of water fasting and intermittent fasting with a time-based window. So if I have a, if I've reduced my time-based window of time-based eating to between noon and say 6 p.m., right? I know at 12 noon, I'm going to eat some fruit. And at 2 p.m., I'm going to eat some sprouts. And at four, five, six PM, I'm going to have sprouts and a salad and some avocados and some other things and some dates. And then I'm done. Like I know that I've had enough calories. I know I've had enough nutrition and I know that like I'm complete. Like I feel good. I don't feel deprived. If I'm randomly eating what other people are telling me to eat, or I'm eating for social to be accepted or because I'm not planning and I'm like ending up, you know, to me, traveling is easy for me to eat while I'm traveling because I know that I'm traveling, right? So I prepare and I plan the same way I have a ticket. I know I'm getting to the airport. I know what flight I'm on. I know what I'm eating on the plane and I'm not going to turn over my nutrition, which is covering the human transport vehicle for this being called Doug Evans to some airline or some mother-in-law or some friend's friend or even some restaurant. Like I take food very, very seriously. And that's where sprouts actually become something that is very easy to travel around with, to eat, low cost, nutritious, recipe, delicious. Like as Juji Mufu said, he feels like he was living under a rock for 10 years, wasn't sprouting, wasn't aware of it. Like that's how I felt. And now that I'm aware of it, it's part of my life. I, I see myself eating sprouts for the rest of my life. That's beautiful, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Um, I, I found it very interesting learning about the sprouts, but also learning about 
your journey from from New York to the desert, and I would love to to hopefully one day be able to pick up on this conversation and we can do a, a round two in the desert if we get a chance to travel again. Well, welcome. I, I, I would love it, Simon. This is what I do. This is what I'm passionate about. And it feels great to be aligned with my purpose. And, and I feel so seen by you. And it's such an honor to be here. And you've done such a great job, you know, with your whole kind of message and how you're running your life. So, I'm I'm glad to be here and you could reach out to me anytime. Is there anything that you feel like we've missed that was super important for people to to understand or are you happy with what we've covered? Look, I think you're you're a great interviewer Simon and the fact that you're sprouting on the show is extraordinary. I I think that it's important for people to just be patient with themselves and to do their own homework and do their research and I think the more informed they are the the more they're going to be attracted to sprouting thank you now if if uh folks in the community i imagine they're going to they're going to start sprouting they're going to get a copy of your book and i'm sure they're going to going to want to share their sprouts with you and maybe even have their own questions so what's the best place for them to to find yourself online I'm most active on Instagram at Doug Evans, D-O-U-G-E-V-A-N-S, and sign up uh, for my newsletter that's coming out. So on thesproutbook.com. So just thesproutbook.com. So those are my my two things. And you know, the the book is a book available in hard copy in Australia. Yeah, I think yeah, you can buy it online. Now, I'm not sure how many days it, it takes to get here. I know some of the books from the States take a little while with what's happening right now in the world, but you know, I'm sure you can, you can definitely get a copy over here. For sure. Okay, terrific. All right. Well, that, that's it, how to find me. And I do my best to, re- to respond to comments and, and to DMs. Like, I learned so much, by the way, from doing these talks and doing the lives and doing the posts because the collective community is just so smart and so on the ball. So I'm learning a lot about this and I've learned more about Sprouts since after I wrote the book than before I wrote the book. So from the time that the date got published. So it's keeping me on my toes. That's good. All right, man, let's let's do this again. And uh, everyone out there, let's get sprouting. Terrific. Thank you so much, Simon. Thanks, Doug. Well, friends, there we go. No doubt you're all pumped up and ready to start sprouting. To help you with that, I've written a blog that summarizes some of the information from this episode. The link is in the show notes, uh, including some information of places that you can buy seeds and jars from in various parts of the world. I'm not affiliated with any of these. I just thought it may help to have some resources to help you get started. And of course, be sure to grab a copy of Doug's book, The Sprout Book, to support a guy who really is trying to make powerful nutrition accessible to all. And of course, to take your nutrition to the next level. It's super fun. It's interesting. And Doug's right. In no time, you'll be reaching for a handful of sprouts instead of that chocolate bar or ice cream. Don't get me wrong, a bit of chocolate here and there isn't the end of the world and certainly can be enjoyed and isn't something to be scared of. But Over time, the more nutrient-dense, vitamin and mineral-rich, low-calorie foods like sprouts we can get into our diet, the better. And if you find them a little bitter to begin with, 
Try mixing them with avocado or tahini and over time they'll be easier to snack on. Or as I did this morning, throw them into your smoothie. Both Doug and I would love to hear about your sprouting experience. So please do tag us in your posts on Instagram and feel free to jump into the Plant Proof Facebook page and share any of your key learnings with other members. On that note, happy sprouting. Thanks again for hanging out with me and listening through to the end. I appreciate you and we'll catch you in the next episode, episode 108 with Lane Norton, PhD on body composition and developing lean muscle.